I'm Angelique Rocher, and this is Marvel's Voices. This episode is going to be kind of an episode that's been in the hamper for a second. I actually, a couple months ago, I had the opportunity to go to the set of Marvel's Cloak and Dagger down in New Orleans and speak to a lot of the cast and crew. Couple of things, housekeeping, spoiler warnings. If you have not been watching the show, if you did not watch season one, if you are not up to date on Marvel's Cloak and Dagger, if you've not gone to Freeform, freeform.com, or watched it streaming on Hulu, stop, do it now. But if you have, I am excited because I had two cool conversations, one with Megan C. Rogers, who is the production designer of the show, and with actress, singer, Phenom, like legend, Gloria Rubin, who plays Adina Johnson, a.k.a. the mother of Tyrone Johnson on the show. First up, we're going to have this conversation I had with Megan C. Rogers about bringing the character of New Orleans alive and its heritage. And the work of a production designer is actually pretty cool. It's anything from the artwork and the structural aesthetics of what is on the walls inside of the Johnson family home to the look and the feel of St. Teresa's Church, where we first find Tandy. And now in season two, where Tyrone is hiding out as they figure out what they're going to do while Detective Connors is still missing. And so I got a chance to sit down with Megan and really talk about the motivation and the feel and the process of how they utilized New Orleans, the culture of Louisiana and the culture of the city to really tell a story within a story that is Marvel's Cloak and Dagger. All right. Uh, So for... Which is amazing. So what is your connection to New Orleans? This is... uh, New Orleans is... Uh, this was actually the first job I've done in New Orleans. Awesome. Um, we did underground. That was We were based out of Baton Rouge, but we were all over Louisiana for that. So we traveled a lot. I'm based in L.A., and then I ended up getting jobs that just the incentives and everything else for film and television. I've worked everywhere but L.A. So... <laughs> I have a love for learning new cities and seeing new places. And I think as a designer, it comes in very handy if you're from someplace else and you're immersed in a new environment because we see things with a different eye. You're looking for, you're looking for the culture. We're very much an anthropologist at heart. And so you look for what makes the heartbeat of the city, what, what, what are the areas of the city, what's the demographics, what do people do here, what do they love, what is generally the heart of a place. And Marvel's Coke and Dagger, this is the first time that Marvel's New Orleans is really being brought to screen. Marvel does have characters that have come from New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Brother Voodoo's from here, Monica Rambeau's from here, but Cloak and Dagger actually started in New York. Mm-hmm. So you you have this clean slate that you got to start with here in New Orleans in creating what this world looks like. For you, what was the first thing that you were like, oh, we just we have to have this? Like this has to be in the show. This is part of what this city is. Um, one of the first things that we felt we really needed was the French Quarter. And one of the things that draws me to, or makes a connection to me between Cloak and & Dagger and New Orleans, rather than New York, is that there's a grit to the world that they lived in in New York. And there's a grit to the French Quarter and uh, New Orleans, in general, all over New Orleans. There's a grit that's underlying, and it's a foundation of grit that brings more to life. Everything grows from it. 
artists are inspired by it, musicians are inspired by it, people have a lot of obstacles to overcome, which further inspires things. So it's finding that grit. And I really liked, um, I felt like the French Quarter is, it's a magical place that people think of if you haven't been here. If you live here, you don't want to go there very often <laughs> because it's hard to get around. There's a lot of tourists. And so it's that, just that, it's a magical place that all the magic really doesn't happen there. You know, everybody thinks it does, but it's, it, has a, um, it has a global understanding. Everybody's heard of it, they know about it. So to have that be the, one of the first places we saw, like we're sitting right now in the Dembala voodoo shop, which when we were talking about going to the voodoo shop, it had to be in the French Quarter. It had to be an iconic street where you can feel the compression of the city and how tight and how old and how long this city's been here. It's been here for so long and survived so much. So starting in the heart where it first began was really important to show. The city is old and it's, it's full of history. You've got Native American, French, Spanish, Acadian, Italian, Irish. Like, interestingly enough, from the Irish Channel to Girt Town, like, how do you start whittling that down for the rest of it? Because in season two, there's a huge expansion of the world of Marvel's Cloak and Dagger, even within the city. Mm -hmm. Well, I think in uh, for season two, we've really just kind of opened up uh, culturally to more elements. I mean, we we definitely hit on some of the iconic places, like seeing the cathedral downtown or in the in the French Quarter. And then also being in the Marnier and the clubs and going to um, Bourbon Street, going to Bourbon Street. And then, but we st we've done a lot with the, a lot of the different quadrants and where some of the um, darker elements are throughout the city, which is what are some of our gang strongholds that we've started to put, put together and stitch together the city. Where we were going into the, we're going into the Marnier and the Ninth Ward. And I mean, especially for, um, when we worked with the um, Mardi Gras Indians, we kind of started going more towards the Ninth Ward and that part of town. And then we've stitched that, because there's an interesting crossover bridge between that area of town and where um, Ty's family has moved, which they're more over by City Park, which is a more safe a more safe part of town, definitely more upscale. They have to make some money. They've definitely make some, made some adjustments to their lifestyle to move to that part of town and lost a lot of people in between. A lot of people just stay where they, their family has been forever and don't cross over into new neighborhoods. So that's a big deal in their family. And now Otis has gone back to his roots in the Ninth Ward, which we'll learn more about that as we're going throughout. But everything else is kind of stitched between that, where Tanya and Ty are looking for crime and looking to help make New Orleans a better place, essentially from this bottom up, they're all over in different parts of the city. And I will be honest, when I first, so I, I- And the river? Oh, the river is everything. And yeah. the bridge scenes, because I really want to talk about this introduction of Mardi Gras Indians. I literally had to like put put the show on pause because I was, I, was, I was in the middle of watching it and I was just like, they're Mardi Gras Indians. Because I'm from here, like to me, it's so important for those things to exist, but also you could tell that the actors were also very well aware of the history. Mm -hmm. How do you prepare? Like, there's a lot of stuff to learn about the city. Uh -huh. How do you prepare 
crew and cast and everyone to like really understand these kind of significant uh, history points. Well, particularly with the Mardi Gras Indians, when we when we went to that location, we shot at um, I can't remember the gentleman's name. It is, but he was a super resource. Mm-hmm. It was the location that we chose, and he had a history of the Mardi Gras Indians, and he was a Mardi Gras Indian. And we had all of our consults, all of the extras, we made sure that they were Mardi Gras Indians, and they were all Mardi Gras Indians who got along and were willing to be together. Which is very important. A lot of people don't understand that there are different tribes, basically. Yeah, they don't always get along, and they're competing constantly. It's a, it's a year's work to get those costumes are amazing to work on. And the diligence with, with, with which these guys work on them, it's amazing. It's every day. And we're going back there. I think it's in the last episode. We have a scene where we find out Otis and he's back in. He's gone back to his friend's house back in the Ninth Ward. And they're sitting and they're working on new costumes through the year. And it's not even close to Mardi Gras, but they do it all year. And to keep it up, that's it. The Mardi Gras Indians are amazing. Yeah. No, culturally, it's it's so beautiful and so amazing. And also another thing, culturally, it's kind of being brought to life in this idea of Marvel's New Orleans is this shift of the Loa dimension. Mm-hmm. The Loa dimension is very, it's not existed before. It's been the dark dimension right. uh, in the comic books. But this is so unique to Marvel's Cloak and Dagger, but also so unique to the culture of voodoo in the city of New Orleans. How do you even start <laughs> in conceiving? Because the dark dimension in the comic books is literally this dark place where people just go and have all their energy sucked. Yep. And it's done. Pretty much. Uh, but you, this show has created this psychological, spiritual plane and is really doing a great job with the Loa, the Crossroads, you know, mm-hmm. the Baron, and with Grand Brigitte and bringing this in in this very modern twist. Where do you start? even start conceiving that? Well, we started with the literal darkness and just that place you, medita- you meditatively go, uh, which is pretty commonplace across a lot of religions. It's like you're finding, you're finding a place of peace or a place to let go or a place to understand something that's otherworldly. So it's almost like it starts in a void or a darkness, then you start filling it up with the beliefs and with what energy can pass through that space. And um, Joe had a really great idea with the, um, with the mall and that uh, as a metaphor in America and everywhere, basically, is that um, there's a lot of things that are dying in the world and some of it's spiritual and some of it's commerce. And one of the things, um, everything costs something right now. Even if you are um, going to church, it costs your time on Sunday. Or if you're believing in something, it's costing you not believing in something else, everything comes with a price. And that's we're suffering because of that kind of commerce and that kind of mentality in the world today. And it's keeping things like voodoo or the voodoo culture and other cultures that are beautiful. And even just all of us having a more spiritual place or a place to be calm instead of running wild for work and money just to make it in the world. And so the mall is kind of the epitome right now is so rich and so vibrant in the 80s, which is when Cloak and Dagger was big and it had its its start. And now they're just these crumbling edifices of money spending. You went there to spend money. There was nothing else to do there. You see people and be seen, but ultimately it was a, spa- a space to purchase something and to have a place where you can't purchase anything anymore. 
but you're thrown into it in the darkness and you're looking for something. So what was the concept of the mirrors and the doors? Because we get this mirror and door concept and then we get this idea of an arcade and a salon and the, I, I still haven't figured out the camping and Connors, but I'm here for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, I think the camping, I mean, some of it's all connected to the personality of the person who's coming into the Valoa. You know, it's all connected to their mentality and what's, um, what's in their heart or what's something that they can believe in. Like the, the arcade is, and a lot of it's also just portals. So you have a place to then go through another doorway to find another, another place or another portal or another window. And it all works within the edifice of kind of like Ty's cloak, which is a portal to another place. But this is just, they're always constantly have to, having to stretch their belief or believe in something and take a jump and walk through a new door. That's every, around every corner is one of the challenges that Ty and Tandy face daily. The writers do an amazing job on this, just making it both mental, uh, metaphysical, and practical. You know, they really walk through doors. Which is not at all easy. No. Um, but there is this grounding of realism in the world around Tandy and Tyrone. Is that something intentional where you're like, they exist, but they also exist in this very real world? Because that's kind of key and core to Marvel. Yes. Well, I think we, we intentionally try to take, you know, so, uh, comic books are so poppy and bright, despite the dark subject material. I mean, it's lines and graphics, and it tends to create a, a more poppy space when you bring it into, into reality. So it's like you're, you're amplifying the background to meet the superhero. Here we're kind of, we take down the background. So we're trying to make everything grounded in realism and very gritty, not overly poppy from the camera motions, which are very um, documentary style, kind of like alive, so to speak. So they're not always static. Everything's always moving. And um, we just try to keep the, the, the world they're in so real. So you can almost believe that anybody could make a, a light dagger and throw it. If there's one concept, one scene, one episode, one just moment that you're just, that either, you know, at this point we're still working, you're still working your way through this, that you're just like, I am so excited about this coming to screen. I'm so excited about viewers seeing this because it seems like it could be impossible, but we're doing it and it's going to be great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. I have that excitement about every other day. And then I, and then I, onto the new set. Today I'm into a motel. I'm always usually excited about the next thing that's coming. We're doing, uh, I'm very excited for uh, Andre's big performance, his final performance when he comes um, live to New Orleans. Um, we're going to have a big concert venue for him. So that'll be really fun to do and to create um, his backdrop and what his headache is just bringing alive, his migraine and his sound visually will be fun to do. So I'm looking forward to doing that. And I think that the, the darkness of the motel that we're doing right now and some of the subject matter for that, while it's hard, it's also very exciting to show something that's so underground. And so that maybe it, it um, amplifies awareness to something that is actually happening in America in a way that helps educate people. I find that really exciting. And that's really interesting because you kind of talked about the colors and the fact that Marvel's Cloak and Dagger first came alive in the comic books in the 80s. It's really interesting, those small details, right? Like, even right now, we're sitting in the voodoo shop. 
um, which is based in the French Quarter. But if you look at these small details that are in the room, I, I didn't know Chantel was a lawyer. I didn't know she went to Tulane. And then you look at the wall and there's these legal books. There's this idea of everywhere you go in the show, there's these little nuggets of justice. Mm -hmm. Is it something that like you set off and you're like, okay, how do we put this in here? Or is it just organic the way it kind of comes together? I think a lot of it's organic um, in the way, I mean, even just some of the color paletting we've done throughout all of the set, uh, all of the sets I have kind of a different range of colors for each character mm. and we kind of lace it through subtly it's not like I have bright blue but I'll bring the colors in for each character and kind of dampen their world with it but keeping with their character uh, keeping with their character like her background is is um law even in Bridget's apartment we have we do have a lady justice photograph and then I did a lot of artwork which was Brooklyn Oh, because where she's, she's originally from, from New York. Where she's from New York, yeah. And um, but just having a good background of what what who people are and what they are, and if people catch the catch the details, it's just extra, you know. What is your favorite small piece that you've been able to add to the show thus far? I think probably in the Johnson House, there's a there's a series of photographs that are on the on the wall um, that are on the way to the back door, between the front and the back door. And they're all just kind of um, black and white photography that you could get at Costco or like Target. But it's all New Orleans landscapes or cityscapes, like throughout the city. It's all, even there's even a couple of Mardi Gras Indians within there, but it's all dampened into black and white so that it's not glaring, but it kind of shows the background of the Johnsons and where they've been, like what parts of the city they've been through. And it's in this kind of regimented form, which is how they've they've changed their lives into that, from the chaos into the order, and that's New Orleans on the wall. So I think that's one of my favorite things. Speaking of chaos and order, mm -hmm. uh, St. Teresa's, mm -hmm. which obviously was modeled after a actual church. There was an actual church in the pilot, mm -hmm. and it was recreated, but there's a very different St. Teresa's this season than what we saw under Tandy, which was very disorderly. Oh, yeah. Stuff is everywhere. He's li There's literally school books. <laughs> like, he's still studying. Yeah. Um, like, there's so much detail in that. What are viewers looking at when they look at this new, renovated St. <laughs> Teresa's? I think they're looking at, um, they're seeing a lot of Ty's ingenuity. Like, he, did, he comes up with a movie screen. But it's also it's also showing some of the collaboration between the two of them because she's bringing him stuff from school to keep that part of him alive so that he doesn't feel alone and still part, still connected to what his life was like he hasn't lost everything. So it's a very touching kind of connection between the two of them and within that space. Uh, at least that's has part of my development of the space. With Joe, he's always got so many <laughs> so many details and so many notes. Put more stuff. Take less stuff. Let's add more stuff. <laughs> so, but it's fun. We always like to have more than we need. And then he can clean out and be specific about certain things. But um, Ty is definitely, his character is like his parents. He's been uh, more regimented and he likes things in a certain place. He's kept his life very orderly since he's had so much trouble dealing with the loss of his brother. So he likes things to be predictable. And this whole, his, part of his 
personal angst it, and lack of control is his own power. Like he doesn't understand it. He doesn't know where he's going. So he's gonna order his pen pencils so that he has control over like one little segment of his life in a place that he's trapped. And St. Teresa's is kind of one of, it's one of the things that actually is kind of pulled a little bit from the comic books. Mm -hmm. Are there any other comic book inspirations that are kind of present in season two? Um, there's some of the, mostly from the police station. I take a lot from the police station on in the comics, and I bring that into elements. And there's, um, let's see what else we do. We do candy bar. There's a candy bar from from the comics, and then we've got some, um, and that's laced into some of the um, signage on streetcars and other things. And what else? We take a lot of posters and other things that we find within the comic and then kind of lace it into the background environments. No, that's really, it's, it's really <laughs> cool though, right? Because you get this, this homage paid to, mm -hmm. you know, 1983, mm -hmm. but also this really cool modernization because I think even in the club scene, which I am so ready to see how this plays out because you have these severe ups and downs with Tandy and Tyrone this season where they have this idea of justice and then it flips and then they meet Mayhem and they're like, maybe Mayhem's right. No, Mayhem's not right. In season one, there was so much difference in light and color and I feel like the Loa dimension and a lot of other things are going to be played with light and production and color and screens, like what kind of work and timing like goes into this and shooting goes into getting this the way it has to go? Because a lot of this is pre. Right. Um, we're trying to, we try to do a lot in camera. Um, that's one of the things that Joe really likes to do. I do too. I, I, my background's in theater, so I love any kind of tricks we can come up with um, to do live rather than relying on post for certain things, but um, in terms of the lower dimension, and uh, this whole season is just more amplified than last season. Last season, we spent the first six episodes with the characters struggling and learning what it is to have a power. And then when you have a power, what do you do with the power? And now we're in season two, and they're struggling with this. We now have the power, and we want to do good things. We want to make good choices, and they're charging into things still kind of a little lack of control, but trying to make good choices and learn what their dependency on each other is. Like this, a lot of the Loa is the connecting, it's a place where Ty and Tandy are kind of learning where they're connected without anything else, you know, and what, how much they need each other. And that's something that it's almost like your interconnection with the spirituality, like for a, a person, they're almost one person basically is what, it's coming to be there, the light and the dark of one person. Um, but in the metaphorically, I think in the lower dimension, it's just, it's interesting to see them struggle with the mystery together of what it is. And visually, we have a lot of planning to do for um, the darkness and what we're going to see and how we're going to light it. And reflections are always a challenge for um, like a mirror wall and other things. And we have a lot of glowing elements that we've been building this year for more of a surreal feel within our um, void space so that it's not lit the way you would expect something to be lit. So it just looks off. So finding ways to make things feel not quite right. 
Well, you know what? I think the best way to end this is what are you most excited about fans getting a chance to see in season two? Mm -hmm. In season two, I'm really most excited for them to get to see the lower dimension. I think that it's a new place that's going to be the um, most mysterious place in our in our docket of places that we're going and we're all figuring it out together. So it's really a fun, um, it will be fun to see how people react to that. That's it, that was amazing, thank you. I want to send a special thank you to Megan for taking the time out in the middle of production to speak with us about all of the work and process and time and love that went into putting together Marvel's Cloak and Dagger's aesthetics, background, and locations. Next up, we do have another very special guest. We have Gloria Rubin, who plays Adina Johnson, a.k.a. Tyrone Johnson's mom. I'm so excited about season two. Yeah, me too. It's been eight months. Ty is on the run. Yeah. Where do we find Adina Johnson at the beginning of the season? Well, Ty's been on the run, like you just said, eight months. She, you know, takes care of business as need be because she has to take care of business. Also, if she were to just not do anything, she would lose her mind thinking about what what's happening, what has happened to Ty, what might be happening, not knowing what's... It's the not knowing that gets you. It's the not knowing. You know, I've thought about that a lot before this season started. That feeling of, you know, you hear these, these awful stories of human trafficking that this, this uh, season deals with, or kids who are... People who are kidnapped. And, you know, it's the not knowing what's happened that can literally people lose their minds. And as we saw in season one, this is the manifestation of Adina's worst fear yeah. is losing her second son. Well, there's this beautiful scene between Adina and Tyrone in the kitchen, you know, that scene just before the police show up because they're looking for him. And she says to him, basically she says, you know, I've already lost one son. You know, if he continues to keep doing what he's doing, he's going to, like, she's going to lose him as well. And then the cops pull up and then he runs and she doesn't see him for eight months. So it's, it's like, I can't even find the words to describe what she's going through emotionally. Also, you know, the stress of it all, and I know that this is a very common thing for uh, an unfortunate um, common outcome for marriages that go through uh, the loss of a child is oftentimes they don't stay together, which is extremely sad. And at at the beginning of season two, Adina and Otis are separated. So you find that as well. Athena has her own form of justice in this season. Oh, yeah. She has got a plan. Yeah. How, what does justice look like for Adina Johnson? You know that uh, an eye for an eye. At a point, your character takes justice into her own hands. Mm-hmm. How does that impact Adina but also, how does that impact her relationship with Ty? I don't know yet. At the moment that you and I are sitting down right now, we haven't filmed that episode yet. We're about to. We start in a couple of days. Now, all I know that 
you know, whatever is written and whatever outcome is happening, whatever outcome happens for Adina and Ty, I just know that for me as a person, and I'm an actress, yes, but I'm a human being first. And um, I don't know how even just shooting these scenes will affect me as a human being. So that, in turn, will dictate my relationship with Aubrey as a human being, and of course, how Adina relates to Tyrone. Like my, your emotions, your body, it doesn't know that you're acting. It's, <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's, it's your emotion and it's your body, so it, it has an impact. What has been the most challenging thing about this season thus far? Well, I certainly, I definitely think that the most, the most challenging thing for for Adina this year is, was at the beginning of the season, you know, again not knowing where her son was, and then he's there, he's back, you know, but then they're on the run again. Then it's like nothing has been resolved, nothing has been, you know, there's no closure to the situation, and then things intensify, and Adina takes the necessary actions to ensure that her son will be okay. What do you think fans are going to be most surprised to see out of Adina or her and Ty's relationship this season? Well, (laughs) I definitely think that fans will be extremely surprised to see how Adina, what she does to get justice. It's, it's It's a very challenging thing for me to, to do what Adina is going to do. Because um, art has impact. And films and television series have long-lasting effects. And um, I'm no advocate of uh, an eye for an eye. So for me personally, it's, this is a tricky thing. You and Ty have a really exciting action scene where you are on the run, you end up in Ursuline Convent, mm-hmm. you are running through the streets of New Orleans. For fans, that is like your action scene. Yeah, but here's the trouble. I read that scene and was like, yeah, I'm ready to, you know, scale that wall and run down the street. It was raining so hard that day. It was, it was like monsoon rain. I don't understand what happens in New Orleans when it rains like that. Seriously. I'm like, what is going on here? Like four inches of rain in 25 minutes, not quite that bad. I'm being a little dramatic. But still, the streets were slick. And there was, so we, I didn't get to scale that wall. They had to have a stunt double. I didn't even do anything. I was like, can't we just reshoot it so that I can, you know, show my athletic skills? You were and ready. Then, and then they were like, Gloria, it's not about you. No, they didn't say that. I didn't even ask. Of course, I'm not going to ask. But... Um, I'm sure that cut together, it's going to be, you know, very exciting. No, it's just this, I love that it's, you know, the two of them on the run. And there's, there is a key pinnacle moment in that scene where you and Ty are on the run, where Ty is like, I'm doing this for my mom. I'm saving my mom. Right. My mom has given everything she can for me. Right. What is going through Adina Johnson's head at that moment? She's like, what are you, a fool? <laughs> What do you, you know, this is a, a moment where, where, the, where, uh, you know, Adina is going to surrender. And the, the, the hardest thing that she does is leave him there 
right? They exit the convent. The, the SWAT team is going in. I mean, what can she think other than her son's going to get shot? Her other son, her living son, is going to die the way that her first son did. I remember when we shot that scene, and um, part of the scene where we're coming out of the convent and the SWAT team is coming in, I, of course, I had to, I wasn't just going to stand there and let this, you know, so I just ad-libbed some, they had to physically hold me back. So I end up yelling, screaming, Tyrone, they're coming, they're coming. And I remember at one point, the first time that we did this, the SWAT guys, they weren't expecting me to reach them. I'm standing here. There are two police officers trying to hold me back. The SWAT team is rushing in through the doors. But at one point, I f- broke free. And I, I, you know, almost grabbed the back of one SWAT guy. And I was like, you... And yeah, obviously that one didn't, yeah, we didn't keep that one. But it was just, you know, you can't, you can't just stop. It was just, it was great. Um, Yeah, it was a pretty intense day. That was a very intense day. That convent, there's some haunted places around here, man. New Orleans is alive. I get get the, yeah, exactly. New Orleans is alive. Yeah, but I I don't like it so much. Yeah, for real. So... Your deepest, darkest fear is that you would lose both your sons. The end of last season, Connors has framed Ty for the murder of another detective. Mm-hmm. Ty is on the run, and you as a mother would do anything for your son. And this season, viewers will see you literally take justice into your own hands. What does that look like? Well, it's a lot of mental play first. There's a lot of um, digging for information that Adina wants to pull out of Connors while she's kidnapped him, while she's like, literally, he has, she has him tied and bound while she's cooking dinner. And if he tells her what she wants to know, then, you know, it's dinner for two. He can eat. It doesn't end up being that way. He tells her what she wants to know, but he's not having any dinner. I think that um, there's, the, there's the thing that, uh, when I read the, this scene, it's the one line where she's, the, the one thing about where she says, I just want to bury my firstborn. I just want to bury my son proper. And when Connors tells Adina that he buried her son in a horse barn. That's where her son, that's where they're going to find his bones after all these years. That's it for her. She's done. So what's next for Adina Johnson? I don't really know. I mean, I literally, truly don't know because I haven't read anything. And that's okay. I don't, I don't, frankly... A little, I know this might sound kind of strange, but I actually prefer, as an actress, to not necessarily know where things are going. Because then, like, I like to discover it as it's unfolding. Who knows? Maybe she'll end up in jail. Maybe she'll end up having a superpower. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Wouldn't that be funny? <laughs> this was absolute perfection. Thank you so much for sitting down with us. I am really looking forward to seeing all of this play out. Yeah, it's going to be intense and fun and unforgettable. It 
was such an honor to speak with Gloria Rubin. I want to say special thank you to her for taking the time out, particularly because those two days on set that we were there and the time that we got to talk to her, she was actually shooting the scenes that she is talking about in that interview. So it was fresh on her mind and I really appreciate her taking the time out. So make sure you're checking out new episodes of Marvel's Cloak and Dagger every Thursday on Freeform and head on over to check out all the episodes after Thursday on Freeform.com and Hulu.